everyone. You're listening to a special episode of The Scoop here on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston. I'm Dinah Jansen, and today we're talking about anti-Asian racism. Canada, like the U.S., has recently seen an uptick in anti-Asian racism, though it has existed for well over a century, perhaps most famously with the implementation of the head tax on Chinese immigrants uh, following the completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway in 1885. However, to the present day, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, there has been a surge in violent attacks directed at Asian Canadians. And today we're welcoming a panel of folks who are here to talk about the rise in anti-Asian racism, including uh, its roots and present day incidents ranging from everyday microaggressions, outright racial discrimination, to even the stabbing of a Korean Canadian shopkeeper in Montreal in March, 2020. We'll also talk about how the press, the police, and the politicians have approached the issue uh, and how, as a society, we can work to create a safer, more inclusive culture. And today, we are joined by Dr. Courtney Sito of the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies here at Queen's University, an expert in activist-driven research that explores the relationship between physical cultures and intersectional justice, and who has written extensively on the experiences of South Asians on the hockey rink a well-known site of Canadian cultural citizenship. And I'm also pleased to welcome Thomas Park, Vice President of the Business Development Bank of Canada, Chair of the Banff Forum, alumnus of McGill, Harvard, and Dartmouth, and who also recently penned an op-ed in the Toronto Star entitled, The Era of the Model Minority Ends in the Face of Anti-Asian Racism. And finally, we are also joined by Noah Wiseboard, Associate Professor in the Queen's Faculty of Law, a leading expert on individual criminal responsibility leading to aggressive war with a research focus on criminal law and the management, reflection, and even exacerbation of intergroup conflict. Welcome to all of you, Courtney, Thomas, and Noah to the show today. Thanks, Dinah. Thanks for having us. Okay, so we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Thomas, perhaps I, perhaps we can start with you and the article you wrote, or the op-ed you wrote in the Toronto Star, The Era of the Model Minority Ends in the Face of Anti-Asian Racism. Let's talk about that article and, and what you wrote about and what motivated you to uh, write it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, uh, Dina. So uh, what motivated me was uh, the horrific attack that happened in the United States in Atlanta, in which uh, uh, a number of Asian, uh, a number of folks were, a number of women were uh, murdered and uh, uh, they were overwhelmingly Asian. And I think it was just the, the the coverage in the media was just like, this isn't race related. And I think that that triggered uh, a lot of us in our different communities to say, this isn't uh, okay anymore. That it's got to the point where, especially during the pandemic, um, and there's a lot of micro leading up to it, but during the pandemic, we've got to the point where us as a community are pushing back uh, against this idea of a model minority. So what do we mean by a model minority? So it's sort of like the, uh, the Kim's Convenience uh, typecast, uh, where you have uh, an immigrant group uh, starting a small business, the kids study very well, they go into the professions and they don't complain. They don't agitate, they don't advocate, uh, they don't get uh, involved politically. Uh, so they, they do quite well economically. So Asian Canadians and Asian Americans have done quite well economically in the middle class. And uh, so in that perspective, they're the model minority because they try to assimilate without complaining too much, which is an issue, which has become an issue. And I think that's, uh, I think that era where 
um, a lot of our parents are, who are were willing to pay the immigrant tax of just accepting a lot of these kind of microaggressions or horrific acts of violence. Uh, it's come to an end. Didn't your family have a um, flower shop in Montreal? Like That's right. So I grew up in a convenience store uh, in Montreal on uh, Plateau Montréal. Did you experience any of these microaggressions or outright? Oh, quite a bit. You know, it was a tough time during Quebec during uh, two referenda and uh, a severe recession. There was a, a double-digit uh, unemployment figure here in Quebec. And during these periods, you know, you got to find a scapegoat, which, which happens a lot, especially the Asian community, because we're not, uh, for one, we're not seen as a community that fights back, that will agitate. Uh, and I think the, uh, the second one, we're not as well organized. Uh, and I think for a third part, a lot of the folks here, they're, uh, especially my parents, their, their first language is not English. Has the character changed of the attacks since those days and until today? I would say in some way, things have gotten a lot better. Uh, so that's the good thing. So people are not saying stuff as they used to say uh, before. Uh, and I think a lot of it, they're held accountable like through social media or have you, if they're just um, education. And there's a lot of ways, I think in the last year and a half, whether it's uh, this rise, I guess, of uh, I guess of white nationalism, because we saw that in the 90s where like the skinhead group and the white nationals were quite, uh, uh, were quite mobilized, especially during the 90s when economic things were tough in Canada. And we're seeing this rise, especially fueled by social media and they can, they can organize themselves. And I think also uh, our growing tensions with China, um, that has that kind of language, the anti-China rhetoric by the politicians sort of bleed into anti-Chinese rhetoric. Um, and then I think also um, uh, it was just that we weren't as well organized to push back against a lot of these things as well too. That's fueled a lot. So like- Courtney, is, does it track at all with your experience of studying racism in hockey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I reviewed an article recently that was talking about how um, young, young players uh, out West are still getting called chink on the ice. Um, so that level of racism is still prevalent. Um, so I'm not entirely prepared to say that things have gotten better. I would say that they, they're just different, maybe, um, that they've manifested differently. But yeah, whenever I present at conferences and things, and I'll have Asian parents come up to me and they'll tell me the experiences of their children and the things that they've um, seen and heard at the rink. So um, yeah, it's not great. It, sport is certainly no different. It's just um, reproducing what we have outside of the rink. But um, I think what, what Thomas was saying about the fact that we don't tend to take to the streets. We're not the marching kind of folks. And that is, um, that is seen very well by white supremacy. Uh, we've been weaponized against black and indigenous communities in that way. And this is what happened in the civil rights movement was they said to black communities, well, well look at the Asians. They put their head down, they work hard, they go to school, they study hard. Um, why can't you do that? And so that's why we're the model minority. As Thomas said, we don't complain. And not everybody can be the model minority because there have been years documented where immigrants from Africa have actually higher um, education levels and things like that but that does not move them into a model position. The, it's really quite rigid almost uh, in some ways, the racial hierarchy that we've created. It's interesting in the criminal law as well, the way that the new Canadian self-defense law became more aggressive and expansive like the Florida one was following um, 
a citizen's arrest at the Lucky Moose Food Mart in Toronto. Uh, this was at a time when the Conservatives were trying to expand their majority in Parliament, and they figured if they used this thing that one of the staffers called the real ethnic strategy, they could get Asian, Southeast Asian shopkeepers in the greater Toronto area who are kind of socially conservative, small business owners to align with that old stock Alberta white European group to expand their, um, their majority uh, in Parliament. Anyway, they used this robbery of the Lucky Moose Food Mart and David Chen's citizen's arrest of the black Canadian who was stealing some flowers as the excuse to expand the law so the shopkeepers to protect themselves. But what actually happened was that the advantages inured to these white European firearm carrying men in the prairies leading to the shooting of, uh, um, um, of Colton Bushi in Battleford, Saskatchewan by Gerald Stanley. So this incident with this Asian model minority shopkeeper, citizens arrest was used to expand the rights of firearm carrying people in Alberta. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So I'm, I'm interested in picking up on this concept of uh, um, weaponizing the model minority, uh, just on what Courtney had said. Are there divisions that have actually been created uh, by the white majority uh, between Asian Canadians and other racialized communities in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a, a divide and conquer situation, right? So if you have all Black, Indigenous, and other people of color joining together, then you have quite a strong um, force to work with. But there is prevalent um, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism within Asian communities. Like that's just a reality of it. And it's because nobody wants to be in the bottom rung of that ladder. So if you get to step on somebody else, then there are in, in turn, less people stepping on you. So it's kind of a self-preservation uh, model. We have seen more solidarity between um, Asian groups and, and Black activism um, with the, the expansion of Black Lives Matter. So that's good to see, but it's definitely a conversation that um, needs to uh, to kind of grow and, and add depth to. Um, yeah, so it's, um, I think one thing that, one um, example that I can pull from is from the National Post. Um, where they actually use the Hockey Night and Punjabi broadcast as an example of um, the good kinds of Canadian immigration that we have to say, look at this broadcast. Um, they love hockey. They love hockey as much as we do. We don't have to worry about these immigrants. What we do have to worry about, and the author wrote very specifically, is like uh, the reserves of Attawapiskat and other um, yellow quill and things like that. So it is to say that these cosmopolitan immigrants are the ones that we want, the people living on reserves who have not been put there by their own choice. They're the problems in Canada. So that's how you very subtly create these tensions between racial groups. All right. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, Noah, anything else to add to that? So uh, that's really interesting, Courtney. I think one acute example is like in the U.S. and the is affirmative action, especially in admissions to like the the Ivy Leagues, and there's that that is probably one of the issues that divides, I guess, because uh, normally we'd be quite in solidarity, but that is one issue, that is one like acute issue that just seems to explode and get such a massive reaction from the um, Asian uh, from the, the Asian community, uh, where there's just this visceral opposition within the Asian American and Asian community, Canadian community, any sense of affirmative action. Um, uh, whereas that's not the case for a lot of progressive in the U.S. And like, uh, though I support affirmative action, I am mindful of like the 
of like the serious like um, uh, uh, the serious frustration a lot of people have on that issue. So, or even I guess people talk about back in the '90s, right? Like um, uh, during the mini LA riots, right? There was the Koreatown, a lot of the Korean shopkeepers versus against the, the versus against even my language, right? Against the black community. When like, hey, we're all living in the same neighborhood, right? <laughs> we're all living, we're all in pain in the same neighborhood. Somehow we're pitted against each other, uh, which is really, really tragic. I mean, this is exactly what happened in the David Chen case that I was talking about at the Lucky Moose Food Mart. So this was a shop, they were, you know, they've been repeatedly shoplifted and including by this same person, Anthony Bennett, who would come by with his bicycle and steal some stuff and leave. Um, and then, um, you know, David Chen used this excessively violent approach using a box cutter and chasing him down, down the alley with his friends and, and um, uh, um, confining him in a truck with a, with a box cutter until the police came. He was prosecuted, claimed citizen's arrest, and then he was actually acquitted, David Chen. And it was uh, Anthony Bennett who ended up being prosecuted for, for the shoplifting. So it was again, and it's playing out in the, the, the criminal law system as well, constantly. So I wonder if we can tease out a little bit more from where uh, this, uh, from where anti-Asian sentiment is actually coming from. More recently with the uptick uh, in uh, anti-Asian uh, racism and, and outright violence, uh, a lot of that we are starting to question as to whether it has anything to do with the coronavirus in and of itself. But of course, anti-Asian racism has existed for many, many years. From where is it coming from that you're aware of? I think uh, I think one is the rhetoric from a lot of politicians calling it the, the Kung flu, the China virus. Uh, well, of course, it comes from the wet markets. Right? We don't need a we don't need an investigation. Um, uh, and we saw that with SARS. And remember, in SARS, uh, the first thing the public did was not go to Asian restaurants, especially the Chinese restaurants. Right? Remember when Jean Chrétien had to go to the Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, Toronto, and that was like a act of courage. <laughs> there was always this kind of underlying. Well, of course, like uh, we got this uh, disease, and it came, it comes from the Asians. Um, I also think there was a growing frustration against, uh, especially particular Chinese Canadians, uh, because we have a real estate crisis in Canada, right? And we needed a scapegoat, and there it's a complicated crisis, right? Like uh, limitations on zoning, right? With the NIMBY syndrome. Uh, very low, historically low interest rates, reduce, reduced uh, lending standards. Like we have, we have a very small population, but we have more than a trillion dollars in mortgage debt. Yet, nope, Chinese buyers. <laughs> it has to be Chinese buyers. And uh, like, even though all the data shows, it's not really the Chinese buyers are driving at the real estate. It's super low interest rate that a young person in their early 20s can all of a sudden grab half a million in mortgage debt with a $25,000 line of credit uh, deposit, right? That, that's the time we live in. And I think you just had a lot of that fueled. Uh, and then I think third, you, people thought they can get away with it. Like they were, I think for a lot of folks that like you see with uh, uh, the great work by black activists, it takes a lot of courage for a racist to attack because that you can be filmed, you know they're going to mobilize. Whereas in our community, we're not very well mobilized. There isn't much of an Asian Canadian community. There's a Korean Canadian community, a Chinese Canadian community, a Japanese. It just goes on, but we're not very. We, we've never spoken out. 
there are reasons why they, um, there's less mobilization, for example, around the uh, spa shooting in Atlanta. I mean, these are low-income people working in a profession that some people uh, look down on. Um, some people's immigration, some of these Asian women that were killed, their immigration status could have been uh, in question. A lot of people working at spas, nail salons, these kind of intersection of being Asian, female, and poor at the same time. They're not so keen to go to the police who they don't find are going to defend their interests. So there's a reason why they don't agitate beyond what you're saying about the cultural factors, for example, in your upbringing, Tom. I can contextualize maybe some of the, the kind of history we're coming from with this notion of yellow peril, um, which really dates back to like Genghis Khan and the, inv the Mongolian invasion of Europe. There was this legitimate fear of a yellow race, quote unquote, uh, becoming an imperial power because of the population size of, of Asia, also military might and, and economic growth. So it's not just a fear about there's going to be more Asian people than white people. It is a fear of no longer being the center of economic and military power. Um, and this is arguably what led to the colonization of Hawaii, Samoa, and the Philippines as well. So, I mean, I think that the, the issue of, of uh, foreign property um, accumulation, for lack of a better word, is a great example, because I think sometimes what we do is confuse an issue of class with an issue of race. Um, so as Thomas said, it's not the only thing, but what people see is wealthy Chinese people coming over and buying homes and not necessarily living in them. But this is what George Clooney does. This is what Taylor Swift does. This is what every multi-million dollar athlete does. This is how you enact wealth. This is how we've been taught how you exercise your own personal wealth. Um, but when racialized people do it, suddenly it becomes a problem because like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to have more money than me. And now you're flaunting it in front of me as well. So that obviously causes tensions. Um, so I think what, what happens here is that the government loves foreign investment, loves money, anybody's money, doesn't matter what color or where it comes from. Um, but the, the, the racial tensions become enacted on the ground in local cities. Um, so when you make an, in, an investor category of immigration that you can buy citizenship for $800,000 that we'll, we're gonna allow people to invest in, in our properties, um, that's great for the government because they don't have to deal with it in the halls of parliament, it enacts on the streets of Canada. Um, so there is a very large disconnect between what is good for Canada as a nation uh, and its economy versus what is necessarily good for its citizenry. And that's really just become increased competition. And that's obviously um, really difficult for people to handle um, in any kind of situation. I have a question for you guys about the increase in kind of this ultra violence um, against uh, um, Asian Canadians. Um, so Tom brought up the fact that probably it coincides with the coronavirus and the um, statements of Donald Trump. But are there any specific factors to Canada, you think, that might have suddenly or, or is it purely an international phenomenon? I would say it's I, I, I think we've, un, I think for a long time, we've underestimated the rise of white nationalism. And uh, it, it, I know it's shocking, right? Because you would think by this time, like, all right, we've, we've, we've tried to find a way to get along with that and such. And I think for, um, 
I just think that, you know, we, we can go to the, the causes of white nationalism, right? We can uh, talk about like, you know, certain demographic, especially white males who don't have university education are really suffering, right? By, by a lot of public health indicators, we need to do something. But I, I think we've completely underestimated the rise of white nationalism. Like here in Quebec City, we have a very strong, virus, uh, uh, vibrant, virulent white nationalist movement. One of them is like Le Muet, and uh, fueled by shock radio hosts, like a lot of conspiracy theorists are based around that Quebec City region. And we've just thought it was just a bunch of whack jobs. We just thought they were a group of flat earthers until they started talking about kidnapping politicians and such. And I think when like certain mainstream uh, politicians like that MP, the Derek uh, Nowak, I think the MP, uh, the Tory MP starts coming after Theresa Tam, uh, they, politicians are at the end of the day like electoral entrepreneurs if they sniff the votes they'll appeal to those votes right and this, these are not accidents it's not an accident that uh, andrew Shear and Aaron tomb did not condemn him for his, for his attacks against uh dr tam and they think we've completely underestimated that yeah i'd agree with thomas that white supremacy is definitely the the fundamental base of the discussion that we're having here um but i think we also just aren't well educated on the the lineage of anti-race anti-asian racism in canada like we had um bans on both black people and asian people being allowed to swim in public pools because a fear of like catching something from each other um and the reason why most Asian immigrants of a particular generation had flower shops and convenience stores and laundromats and restaurants is because they were barred from um, working in fields like pharmacy and, and law, which, you know, we kind of equate them with now, but historically that's not been the case. Um, and we disenfranchised uh, Chinese and, and Japanese immigrants in, in Canada in the late 1800s. So we have a long history of setting up this anti-Asian racism. So we should not, not ever be surprised. Um, I find that this racism is more driven by kind of like incidents where it flares up as opposed to anti-Indigenous racism or anti-Black racism, which is like, okay, we know colonization, we know slavery. Um, and so that kind of sets up a much longer um, institutionalized racism, whereas it seems to be with Asian cultures, it's more kind of like driven by something that pops up and then we have a, a short-term memory about it. Maybe this is one of the reasons as well that it's difficult to prosecute hate crimes against Asians compared to hate crimes against um, Black Canadians or Jewish Canadians, for example, is that, you know, there's obvious symbols of hatred that you can attach the, 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 the motive and the animus to when it comes to a Jewish attack against a Jewish person or a African Canadian, the swastika, the noose, but you don't have the same thing um, for anti-Asian um, attacks. But maybe there is now with the coronavirus, maybe there's a connection there between the suddenly and maybe that also creates the possibility of a more robust prosecution of hate crimes against Asians. Now that we're hearing people say something co uh, coherent, even a completely um, uh, off base uh, about Asian people in their attacks. 
So let's talk a little bit more about specific attacks. Uh, for example, Noah was on our uh, program uh, within the last couple of months, uh, speaking about the Atlanta shootings, uh, and uh, also Thomas, you had you had discussed uh, a couple of incidents as well in the op-ed that you wrote, and maybe Courtney, uh, maybe in your own research uh, related to South Asians and hockey and and racism encountered in the hockey arena, anti-Asian racism as a very distinct phenomenon. What does it in fact look like from, from the level of maybe a microaggression to the outright violence that we've seen culminating, for example, in Atlanta? Uh, great question. So, all right. So it can be what we have seen in Montreal where my poor wife, especially Asian women, they bear the brunt a lot of this, right? They carry much heavy burden, right? Objectify, sexualize. Uh, it's just the goes from like the creepy sexual harassment. Uh, well, I spent some time teaching English in Japan, so I'm just going to start hanging out <laughs> and start like Courtney smirking because she's not talking about, right? Uh, to uh, attacks on the streets, right? Like shoved, pushed uh, to like shops being vandalized, like windows, like, you know, you go to bed at night, all of a sudden you're, you're like your front window smashed to like just uh, being physically attacked uh, quite a bit. You saw that video in Vancouver of that uh, uh, senior citizens being attacked and remarkable social media say, hey, this is anti-Asian racism. This is not just violence. This is, <laughs> And I think you just see that quite a bit. It, it, if you talk to a lot of Asians, including myself, like you've been uh, uh, targeted and uh, uh, I guess victimized on a lot of these kinds of attacks. And like my wife just immigrated just a few years ago. She's like, well, what the hell is going on here? Uh, you know, and she's She's, she's very concerned walking on the streets alone now. I think the most annoying microaggression for any Asian is the question, where are you really from? So we, get, so we get asked, where are you from? And you tell them, Vancouver, what have you? And then it's never good enough. It's like, you know what's coming, that there's always a second question. Well, where are you really from? Where are your, where are your family from? Okay. <clears throat> and it's like, it happens in Canada. And it also happens abroad. Um, I find that when I travel, people will ask me where I'm from. I tell them Canada and they get immediately visually disappointed that I didn't say China or Japan because they wanted an exotic person to talk to. And the Canadian is just not that, unfortunately. Um, so that question I think is something that we can strike from our vocabulary. Um, and also this assumption that Asians are not athletic is one microaggression that that comes up a lot in my work. Um, Jeremy Lin, the basketball player, has talked a lot about how, you know, he led his high school to a state cha championship and you would think that he would get a Div 1 NCAA offer, but he got no scholarship offers. And he's pretty sure that if he were Black, you know, he would have had multiple offers to choose from. And Jeremy Lin is also one of these people who's been called coronavirus on the court um, since COVID has happened. So um, I think that one of the reasons that anti-Asian racism doesn't get a lot of news coverage from day to day is because most of it takes the place of microaggressions that are just kind of conversational. They're annoying, but they're not necessarily violent. So it's when something really violent happens, then we talk about it. But on most days, we just don't. Yeah, we talk about it when something very violent happens. Um, you know, you see these attacks on these elderly Asian people, really nasty stuff. But when nothing is said, from the person who's doing the attack, it's very difficult to prosecute as a hate crime. So it's very rarely prosecuted as a hate crime, especially our Canadian hate crime legislation is, is kind of very specific. I mean, there's a section on advocating genocide in the criminal code. 
public incitement of hatred, mischief relating to religious property. Those are the only three provisions. And then at sentencing, um, a racial, anti-racial animus could become an aggravating factor, but that's it. There's no special uh, uh, hate crimes provisions. And you need kind of to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person had that anti-racial animus in order to prove that there was that ag aggravating factor in place. So very difficult to prove in these random attacks we're seeing on the internet on YouTube. Uh, well, speaking of media, I wonder, and we've touched on 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 the place of the media a little bit so uh, so far in our conversation today, uh, largely in the sense of uh, the way they they haven't been covering uh, cases of anti Asian uh, racism uh, or violence and and treating them with the same gravity or seriousness that uh, other types of racism uh, might be. However, at the same time, the press, uh, certainly over in the last year, has also, uh, maybe in some camps, has also inflamed a lot of the anti-Asian racism that we're talking about today. Can we shift our discussion over to where we might have seen some examples of that in the last year? Oh, I, I, I think a lot of it happened with uh, SARS. You know, you read these like a global, I still remember this global mill uh, op-ed where it says, can you believe Toronto is being compared to Seoul in Tokyo? <laughs> can you believe that? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 to now, um, where I think it, it, it has gotten better. I, I, I will say that in some ways, right? Uh, it wasn't as bad as was as some of the, uh, as what happened in the, uh, uh, with SARS, though, that more of the mainstream media has gotten uh, better than, I, I won't include the Facebook and social media. But I think- Why do you mean, like, in better in what way? Well, I think one where I'm actually seeing like Asian uh, columnists and writers, which wasn't the case a number of years ago, which is nice, right? You bring in that perspective. Maybe because I'm just so, uh, uh, I'm a kid of the 90s. So I remember how bad things were like, oh, well, things have gotten better in that way. They don't say those things anymore uh, and such, right? They don't assume I own a restaurant uh, <laughs> anymore. Um, so I think it, it, in that way, we've given more, more of a platform. But I think uh, in the last year, I think specific examples were when politicians were leading the language with theme, like, let's have a take a st tough stance against China. And then all of a sudden questioning the loyalty of Chinese Canadians and therefore all Asian Canadians. Like, we're going to question your actual loyalty to your country. Uh, which is like an old trope, right? It's like an old trope. You're going to be this fifth column against the against the country, and that just keeps getting fueled. That kind of that kind of doubt about your patriotism, and then it gets amplified through social media. And I think we saw that with Director Tam. I mean, if of all the jobs trying to fight the COVID virus, given the limitations we have with uh, with our governments and uh, with our politicians, how they're behaving, there's the times like she's a hero. And to question her patriotism in the middle of a crisis, that, <laughs> that is just unbelievable. In, in fact, Derek Sloan, the MP that you're talking about, it's right next door to, to, to Kingston. He's also a COVID denialist. I mean, he was recently, I think maybe over the weekend, arrested at a church or given a ticket at a church for this massive gathering where there was hugging and he's going to call challenge the constitutionality of the ticket. But um, it, it just connects with this idea that what happens in the United States has an effect on Canada. The kind of the, the Canadian um, um, uh, political dynamic is highly affected by what happens in the US. Yeah, I think 
one problem that the, the media kind of reproduces is the notion of Asian as a monolith, that we're all the same kind of Asian. There's no specificity um, with respect to, to which group you're speaking about. So when we talk about Asians are generally econ economically well off, they are, but when you get down into the actual data of it, certain groups are not. So like Cambodians, Vietnamese tend to be um, disproportionately represented um, uh, below the poverty line. So we need to actually get into the nitty gritty to understand um, that it's not all Asians. Um, and that's probably one of my pet peeves as well as if you're going to be a racist, be a good racist, do your research, <laughs> know one group from the other, right? But no, um, because we only ever see Asian as this one group, um, then we all kind of end up being melted in together. Um, so I think the media tends to show up in bad times and not in good times. So where are we talking about Asian contributions um, to Canadian society, that would be super helpful. Um, use the word racist when you mean racist. Don't use the word racially charged or racial incident. I don't know what racially charged even means. Um, so use the appropriate language and celebrate the stories of contribution. Like as a hockey fan growing up, did I know that Larry Kwong was the, the player that actually broke the, the color barrier in the NHL? I did not. I was very old until I found that out. So why is that not a quintessentially Canadian story that we're celebrating across the media? So I think we need to look for more opportunities to, um, to do that kind of celebration as opposed to just showing up with a microphone when, when bad things happen. I'm going to go back to one of your questions. I think for for like a lot of your listeners uh, about a specific example, I guess, of uh, anti-Asian uh, racism. It comes down to high school admissions to private schools here in Canada, right? Uh, like especially here in Quebec, we have, I guess, we have uh, our version of charter schools. We call them semi-private schools, right, where the government subsidizes eighty percent of tuition. And each of the admissions was an entrance exam. So you just wrote the exam, and if you hit a certain mark. You're in. So you're into Birabeuf, you're into all of these schools, in this case, USCC, et cetera, right? And then all of a sudden, there was concerns about the makeup of, this, of the students. Wow, we don't want students who just do well on the exam, which was strongly correlated with a large influx of Asian Canadian students coming in. Now they want the interview. Now they want the references. Now they want to see extracurricular. And it wasn't an issue for like almost a century until you saw a lot of people like me and Courtney scoring quite well on those tests. <laughs> no, I know, I know, Courtney. Me too. I'm an average Asian kid too. <laughs> Wasn't the math genius? <laughs> I was in remedial math at uh, in my MBA program, so I, I can't uh, lecture. So. We see that it's all of a sudden you see this anxiety. Oh, well, I'm, I'm concerned about the, the school makeup. Well, I'm concerned about all of these kids from China coming in and just passing the test, but they're not really contributing to the school spirit. You'll you see a lot of that. I was told by my grade 12 math teacher that I'm bringing down my race. So, well, that that brings me to the question that I uh, that I wanted to ask uh, earlier too. What is the impact on the sense of membership in one's immediate community, let alone the Canadian fabric? I think, well, for me, like, I, I love this country. And I think, you know, I, uh, no one knows uh, we've worked overseas or worked overseas. Uh, I was in global health, so I worked in West Africa, Southeast Asia, India. I still think Canada is the best country in the world. And this frustration is out of love because we know we can be better. Other countries, they may have issues. I mean, different. <laughs> the same love for me, for the country. I hope they do better, but Canada is my country, Quebec is my province, and I want it to do better. Um, and so I, 
I think membership is tricky because if we were promised a, I guess if we're promised to be work hard, you will do well. But if we're not getting represented in the executive roles, leadership roles, judicial appointments, da, 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 there's a growing frustration. And therefore, you know, when I wrote my op-ed, we're going to mobilize. Uh, but this now is a time where, you know, COVID, it's going to create a, a stronger, which I believe a stronger Asian community, Canadian community. Though we may have our historical grievances, right? Like Koreans and Japanese have a well-known historical grievances. But to me, I share more in common with the Japanese Canadian, given the challenges we face, than I do with the historical grievances that, you know, people back in Seoul or Tokyo may have. I think that's going to be one of the consequences where we were promised this. If we studied hard and worked hard and put our pay taxes and bought our homes and da 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 and joined our associations, we were promised we're not getting it. We're going to mobilize. Yeah, I think that that's a, it draws a really good parallel to, to the promise of assimilating through hockey as well. It's like, if you play this game, you will be Canadian. This is how we figure out who is Canadian, who is not. Um, so what we have done is invited racialized Canadians into a system that is not ready for them, doesn't know what to do with them, and in some cases just flat out doesn't want them. Um, with my experience, with my research with South Asians in particular, some of the parents have noticed just a general resentment um, because now they're able to buy the opportunities that white Canadian families have typically been able to buy, which is more power skating, um, better equipment, more opportunities to accelerate their children's um, progress. And sometimes they've shared, you know, they might not be comfortable doing a, a fundraiser at a pub or something like that. So what they'll do is they'll throw in a couple hundred dollars. White families have read that as like, you're not trying to assimilate to be part of the culture, which I think is what we're talking about with like some sort of this fear of too many of you folks in our school, you're changing the culture of it, but not understanding where it's coming from. It's like a general discomfort and not being part of the community because nobody's tried to welcome them in. So I'm going to contribute, but in a, in a disconnected, disengaged kind of way, because that feels safest for them. So I think that there's definitely some hurdles that we, we have have to um, overcome and I, I would love to see the athletic community kind of mobilize over this we we're not great with um, athlete activism in Canada so that's uh, quite unfortunate and, and typically new kind of minorities are invited into the mainstream fold for cynical and opportunistic reasons you know one is chosen at a time you know, like it happened with, with my group, with, with Jewish Canadians. We were integrated at a certain moment when, and there was also with this, um, this movement in the 2000, early 2010s with trying to integrate these South Asian and Asian shopkeepers into the Conservative Party in order to win the majority government. You know, there's kind of a trade that's going on here uh, where, you know, you, you're going to do this for us and then we're going to treat you a little bit more like white European Canadians. And, and that's a little insidious. Mm. So I'd like to go back to uh, Thomas's earlier remarks to, uh, for example, about uh, high school and the transition into universities and being accepted into universities. Uh, that might have certainly had impact loudly on uh, the students, uh, the student populations, but eventually the faculty populations too, because some students move on right up through those levels and become faculty members. I'd like to hear a little bit more on that and how that might have also translated into the business world as well, which uh, Thomas, you wrote about and touched on in the op-ed you wrote uh, as well as a uh, business executive yourself. 
are Asian Canadians well represented in the business world, in the high executive world that you are currently occupying? Yeah, great question. You know, there's this uh, there's like uh, this organization called Ascend, which is uh, uh, I guess an advocacy professional association for Asian American, Asian Canadians, Pan Continental. And they did a wonderful study. You know, she was showing that given the number of, I guess, Asians that work in an organization were disproportionately underrepresented in leadership ranks, especially Asian women. And I think for a large extent, the, there's an unconscious bias where Asians are not seen as leadership material, right? Tom's a great guy. You know, he's a team player, gets the, he's very good operations, but head of marketing, CF, uh, you know, head of marketing, CEO material. No, you need someone more charismatic. You need someone more extroverted. You need someone... Did, 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 which doesn't fit the model minority mindset. I just, so there is a serious uh, uh, dearth of, uh, it's called the bamboo ceiling, right? We're just like, oh, well, let's make sure to get up to a certain point. And, or I'm saying that there's a real risk to corporate Canada where all of a sudden we're given options where they, because of our, I guess for a lot of us, our, our, our mixed heritage client, but a lot of these kind of Asian conglomerates are investing here and they are recruiting management teams. They are building startups or investing in their startups. We'll go end up working there uh, as well too. So yeah, there is, uh, Ascend's got a great study on this kind of bamboo ceiling phenomenon. Uh, at the same time, uh, where we're starting to shop saying we're just, our expectations of my hire because we're just saying, why wouldn't I be entitled to these roles? Why couldn't I be coach? Just to get this straight, Tom. So what you're saying is that like a, a big company, big multinational like Samsung or something like that, or I don't know which one, but would build a um, an outpost in Canada and then start hiring Korean Canadians. You know what? I, I got. I had a dinner once with uh, with uh, uh, some execs from like a major Chinese uh, multinational, and they were saying, "Man, I love recruiting in Canada. It's so easy." I just go to the different uh, large tech companies and uh, I just hit that middle level director, assistant vice president, and they're all frustrated. They've been there for like a decade. I'll give them a pay increase, better title. Boom. They're gone. They're gone. Um, so it's a brain drain. <laughs> it's a kind of brain drain. It's totally. A, a, and you'll just see that the people will pick that up. Uh, and I think some of the, I think the, the, the people are starting to get wiser. Like the banks, for example, are, are getting more aggressive. Uh, on this, like, I didn't know there was an Asian heritage month, <laughs> like a quarter ago, no, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, some of the major banks are planning big activities around Asian heritage month, which is May, I, I didn't know that, <laughs> no one ever did anything for that, uh, so um, I think they're starting to realize this is a serious risk, especially, like, if you're in certain industries, like in the tech or financial services industry. And now, Courtney, Noah, both of you are in the professoriate. Uh, what might that look like in the academy in terms of uh, representation? Yeah, I mean, I think here at Queen's, um, I often, I get a lot of um, follow-up attention from young Asian women students. Um, and that's great. I, I appreciate that kind of uh, connection with them. And I think that they, they, sometimes they tell me that when they signed up for my race and sport class, the first time when I just started here at Queen's, they're like, they had just assumed it was going to be a night, another white male professor and that they were kind of shocked to see me walk into the classroom. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, this is going to change, but there's also so few 
um, tenure track jobs these days and it's like it, the competition is even um, more exacerbated. So um, we have we had the hope with COVID that we would have maybe a, a better um, better recovery plan for the world that we would see the errors in our ways and, and try to fix those. But um, what we have done is doubled down on everything. So why would the academy really do anything different? I haven't seen um, necessarily anything um, that's going to point to a big change. I know that Queens is definitely trying to, to diversify the, the faculty there, but you also need to have a good pipeline coming up. Um, and that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, in the in le legal academy, um, there's a big effort to diversify. Um, and right now at Queens, it's focused primarily on hiring indigenous and black professors and staff. Um, but uh, uh, there's also, I know the hiring committees at different schools are also looking for uh, Asian law professors. And with that in mind then too, what about the lawmakers and of course the uh, politicians as well? Uh, and of course, we've already touched on uh, how some politicians have certainly uh, exacerbated anti-Asian racism uh, in Canada and certainly in North America too, but uh, what could our lawmakers and uh, politicians be doing in order to better, uh, to create a better, more inclusive society through law and policy too? What are your thoughts? Tom for sure knows about this because he's been very involved with the Liberal Party of Canada for a long time. Um, and I think actually he'd make a very good um, uh, political leader. I've mean, known him for most of my, most of my uh, education. That sounded like an endorsement <laughs> to me. <laughs> so I am not, just to be clear, I do not advocate uh, for the Liberals or uh, everything. <laughs> Thank you, Noah. <laughs> Uh, I think one is is a commission, just a report, to study like what what is going on. We we've gone seen through through SARS. We have a real estate crisis in which a lot of the uh, Asian Canadians being uh, kind of targeted in COVID. Uh, let's begin with uh, uh, with a commission to study this, right? Let's get the data. Uh, let's understand this. Uh, I think the second thing is uh, how you kind of. Uh, do the outreach. It's going to be hard, right? Politicians are, are very simple. I just need votes. And if it, if I have to do this, they win votes. Like Derek Sloan, like he's doing it because he's getting votes. It works. He's doubled down on uh, uh, on his approach. It works. He experimented. It got traction. He's doubling down. And I think it's showing that you can get traction with that kind of rhetoric. Uh, I think the third, and that's on the conservative side, on the progressive side, just because we're not white doesn't mean we're going to vote progressive. Uh, it's much more nuanced. What was surprising, like, like Noah was right, like we, the U.S. political atmosphere has an impact here in Canada. Uh, what surprised was the increase in the number of Asian voters voting for Trump and voting for the Republican Party because of specific issues like affirmative action uh, in, in, like in, in uh, you know, college admissions. Uh, and so I think for progressive, it's just... Uh, I think for those on the left, if you cannot it's assume and take for granted, we'll just vote for the NDP or liberals just because we're not white, because uh, it won't take much for the Tories to figure out there's a, there's a national constituency here. I'll point out there are a lot of some of the most, uh, those responsible for some of the most conservative policies like John Wu and such were, are Asian, uh, or like here 
some of the most like conservative voices on gender identity is Asian, right? So uh, it's it's not natural. Uh, it's not automatic. We'll vote left as well, too. Yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up. I think it's Angela Davis who says, just because you're my skin folk doesn't mean you're my kin folk. Um, so I think those nuances are certainly important. Um, I think legislating edu provincial education to be more inclusive about the racist histories of Canada would be one way to do it. I mean, we're slowly getting there with the TRC. Um, I certainly went through all of my public schooling, never hearing the word residential schools, uh, but now our students at least have some understanding that these were a thing. Um, so I think that that's one way to do it. It'd be nice if our professors also taught these kinds of histories in their classes, whether they be science or arts, so that they're not isolated in the um, kind of race and ethnicity classes. Um, I also think that we need to change our current citizenship test and guide, which came in with the, the Harper administration, um, which was a very stark turn away from the previous citizenship guide. And what we saw was higher failure rates, uh, in particular, South Asian women coming to uh, coming in with the family class of immigration. Um, so our current immigration policies are extremely patriarchal um, and oppressive to immigrant and refugee women because they reproduce financial dependency on the husband. So it's not necessarily directly uh, for East Asian um, folks, but it will definitely help across the board. Anything else to add there, Noah? Yeah, I guess what I'd say is that, um, is that at the political level, there seems to be an opportunity from my perspective, at least at the federal level and probably at the provincial level as well in Ontario, um, for there to be more representation, Asian representation at high levels of politics. And you can see that from the Conservatives 2010, uh, very ethnic strategy where they're trying to kind of target these groups and that's how they won their majority as I mentioned earlier. So I think that there's an opportunity there um, and uh, I don't know what it's gonna take for it to kick in. Maybe it's the mobilization that Tom wrote about in his Star article is gonna help so that you can have a coherent um, uh, movement, uh, pan-Asian uh, movement where differences are recognized, but also uh, common interests within the Canadian political class are also acknowledged and uh, taken advantage of in a way by Asian community members, not by white Europeans inviting them into the fold. Hmm, okay. Excuse me. I'd like to get back to an earlier comment, too, that Thomas had made uh, related to uh, the model minority, but also uh, extending from that the, the, so the solidarity and or lack thereof uh, between Asian communities in Canada as well. I'm wondering from this idea of the model minority, not agitating, not rocking the boat, not advocating, as you had said, Thomas, what might be changing now in terms of uh, inter-community um, uh, dialogue and solidarity, let alone action? What might be happening? I think uh, one, we're at a very early stage. So I think it's just like building a narrative or I just, I, I think a, a collective identity that there is this Asian Canadian identity because it, it never existed. It didn't really exist. We went to our own restaurants, went to our own temples and churches. Just we kind of were encouraged to date our own kind, right? <laughs> just really date, uh, just date within our own community, right? And go to certain schools. Um, uh, I think that's changing. I think we are slowly seeing uh, an infrastructure being built, uh, like stop COVID hate. You see a Sin Canada 
which is very corporate. And uh, so they got that place. Uh, but I think we're gonna start seeing much more of a, of a growing infrastructure. And I think the third is just like talking, like, you know, um, it's just, I used to just talk, you know, you, we would just share these kind of concerns, you know, with just other, let's say other Korean Canadians, like if me and Courtney, we could sit down, you know, and like, boom, we just have, <laughs> we have so much to share. And we would realize just having these conversations, it's like, yeah, me too, I went through this. Yeah, me too, I'm frustrated. Uh, and these kinds of jokes and sharing of frustration. So I think it's building the infrastructure. Uh, I think it's uh, building a common identity, which is starting to emerge. They think building these links, we're, we're still very early, but I think that's what, what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think social media has played a huge role in the difference between like Thomas and my generation and, and the generation we're seeing now. Um, a lot of the hockey players that I talked to, they were the only hockey player on their team or in their league. They didn't know any other Asian or visible minority through their entire playing career. But now with organizations like Upna Hockey, they can see other people. They can know that they're not the only one. They can share their experiences and that helps build their alliances and a pride in their own identity, which whereas before, uh, certainly for myself growing up, it's like you want to blend in as much as possible. You don't want to be different. Um, so I think we're seeing that shift with this generation facilitated by social media. Um, I learned recently of an organization called Asian American Athlete Association. Um, founded by uh, a Canadian hockey player who went to Dartmouth. Um, and so it's, it's those things that are starting to pop up. And so, yeah, I think uh, we're on the cusp of, of seeing more solidarity, um, but it is all very new to us. I agree with Courtney. I think that it's a lot of it's institutional about um, kind of grassroots civil society institutional. You can see this in the Jewish community in Canada. Um, strong institutions, though there are big divisions in the Jewish community in Canada, uh, Sephardic and Ashkenazi, you know, like North African and European backgrounds, um, you know, Orthodox and secular, um, Zionist and uh, not Zionist. Um, you see these massive divisions, but nobody talks about the Jewish community as being fractured, and it's part because of institutions, Jewish institutions. Now, there are different institutions for the very religious Jews and the secular Jews. They go to different schools and things like this. Uh, but there are also, there's the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal, for example. Um, I, I think that it just doesn't come out of nowhere. This, this building of civil society is a prerequisite to a unified identity. All right. Thank you for that. So uh, as we come toward the end of our chat today, I guess uh, other things that I'd like to be able to provide opportunities for you to talk about too are what we can be doing moving forward. What can the politicians, the corporations, the press, and uh, we haven't talked about them yet, the police also be doing uh, when it comes to anti-Asian racism. What, what are your thoughts? I think one, it's what I always concerned about is that uh, we're kind of fighting for like to be a little higher up the rung, right? I think we need a new narrative where we're not just, you know, just just sharing our grievance, right? And, uh, and such, but the, there is something where if we work together, uh, all of us, right? This, we can build, it's, it's cliche, but we can, we can have a, a better society right, where it's, it's truly meritocratic and we do help those left behind and, and, and there are systemic issues here we can't, we can't ignore. Uh, so I think there's something about a, a new narrative about uh, rather than this kind of auctioning of grievances across us different minority groups uh, where 
it's not helpful because then we'll just end up just fighting against all against each other for the different initiatives. I think the second thing is I think we 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 do need to take this seriously. I think a, some kind of a public inquiry or a commission to just look into this report and it's very helpful. It's, I think it, it is helpful. I think third is to take it seriously. I think is to at least take anti-Asian racism seriously. And was shocked when one of my closest black friends said, I didn't know this was an issue till you wrote your op-ed talk. I didn't think, I thought there was no racism against Asians. I think you guys were all done. <laughs> I was like, me too, <laughs> me too, I guess. Uh, and so I would say those three things. Um, I think I've talked about things that the media can do, but other things I think um, is that everybody can help call out anti-Asian rhetoric. Um, it might not seem like a lot, but if you talk to your racist uncle, you talk to your racist uncle, that's like two less conversations that Thomas or I would have to have. And it's not something you will ever really get to see the direct effects of, but I guarantee you it makes a difference to us um, because maybe you're having that conversation once a month. We're having that conversation almost daily, um, depending on when, where it is. But um, so one thing is just the, the change of language and calling people out on their, on their speech. Um, Two would be to stop appropriating our food would be really nice. Um, a lot of people- Oh, so true. How many of these like white hipsters gonna open up the ramen shop? It's just gonna, it's just driving me crazy. Exactly. Oh, I've been to Japan for three weeks and therefore I'm a master ramen. I'm like, please. I've been making my, I've been making my own kimchi for 15 years. Oh my God. That's <laughs> that is different, but you're not putting it in a jar and selling it at Whole Foods saying, hey, have some authentic Korean. No. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and then lecturing others about the history of kimchi and like how you're this kind of story. That's different. And, t and telling you, Thomas, about your own culture. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think most people expect Asian food to be cheap coming from the divey parts of town, but then they will pay top dollar for the fusion version made by a white chef. Um, Ugly Delicious is a wonderful series on Netflix that gets really into the cultural aspects of, of food around the world. Um, so I would suggest watching that. And um, donate really to Asian, uh, one organization would be the Asian Mental Health Collective or the Chinatown Foundation in Vancouver. Um, redistribution of wealth is, is one very simple way that we can help. Um, and also diversify your own media consumption. You know, it's like, take a take a good critique of your own Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter feeds and see who is creating the content for you. What stories are you seeing? Um, because there is such, this is the power of participation participatory media is that you can find new people, you can make great connections, you can hire differently. Um, so if you change how you are consuming and who you are consuming, that makes a big difference as well. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind adding something on policing here. Um, there has to be a change in the way that police officers are trained. They're trained like paramilitaries now. And you saw in the way that the Atlanta police responded to the spa shooting, how they need more training into some of these uh, racial dynamics and these histories of racism. For example, the spokesperson for the Atlanta, uh, I think it was the Atlanta police, but it might've been the municipality uh, next to the Atlanta police uh, said that this wasn't an issue of anti-Asian racism that he shot it up because he said that he had a sex addiction. They couldn't hold both thoughts in their head at the same time, but there's a long history of um, kind of hatred against Asians expressing itself in a sexualized way, especially against Asian women, you know, and the police should know about that. 
So same thing with indigenous issues as well. They should be aware of uh, histories of um, racism against indigenous people. But uh, now we're seeing, and perhaps a greater representation of Asian people on the police forces in these major cities would be a helpful thing to have as well. Thank you, all of you. So uh, anything else to add before we close today? Final thoughts, Courtney? Um, no, now I want kimchi. That's my final thought. <laughs> <laughs> I will provide you a jar for free. <laughs> Noah, Thomas, how about you? Final thoughts? Um, I guess uh, on my end, it's that these racisms are connected, but there are distinct features of each of them. And Tom's point earlier uh, before about um, uh, European chauvinism and white supremacy spreading from one group to the next, um, that's important to realize. Uh, uh, it's not just um, you know, the other person's group that's going to be attacked. It, it's yours next. I would, uh, my final thought, I guess, from a, a bringing a global context is to understand uh, we are not, this is what things that happen here is not just a domestic audience. Like when these attacks happen, they get spread on social media and then they get amplified by social media in Asia, like especially in China, Korea, Tokyo, it, it just, they get amplified. And that'll have an impact uh, for us on our foreign policy. Uh, when they like, uh, and these are countries that are getting wealthier, according to pointing out, like, What's happening right now, the world is going back to normal, where the center of economic gravity uh, is going back to Asia, where it has been for most of history, and that's causing a lot of anxiety here in the West. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on our foreign policy because the Chinese presidents say, what the hell is going on here? Korean presidents are going to say, what's going on here? Why would I do a free trade agreement if you're treating my people like this way? Like I put in my article, like, it was the consul general here, consul general Korea, was warning people about what happened against uh, that poor uh, Korean Canadian man who was uh, killed here? Like a foreign government warning Canadians, like me. <laughs> uh, and so I would say that there are going to be, if the equity issue is not going to convince you, the foreign policy issue should convince you because there, there is an audience people are looking towards uh, to see how we're behaving here. And there will probably be consequences. In the long run. All right. Well, thank you very much, Thomas and Noah and Courtney, all three of you. Thank you so much for your time today, folks, uh, listeners. We have been chatting about anti-Asian racism. It's uh, a little bit about its history, the recent surge in anti-Asian racism and violence in Canada and beyond, and strategies that uh, we might look to to uh, create a more inclusive society for all uh, overall in the future. Thank you all for joining us here today on CFRC. Thanks, Steiner. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. It was a lot of fun today. It was a good chat. Awesome. Thanks for having us.